This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform, and I am sitting here with Dr. Brad Dieter. D Brad, did you want to say hi to everyone? Hey, everybody. It's great to be back here. So this is going to be a podcast, but it's also going to be a video companion to the programming for Fat Loss Guide. And Brad wrote that with a tiny little bit of help from me, um, bringing kind of the layman's voice into the book. But basically what we're talking about and what Brad is going to go over in the next hour is when you're trying to set up how you exercise as it relates to fat loss cycles, there's kind of the way that most people think of it is as hard as possible, as often as possible. And that really is what I believe kind of a gigantic chasm, you know, in the health and fitness industry that really needed to be rectified. And, and so, you know, when Brad first came on staff, I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if we had a book and we could talk to people reasonably about exercise and how to set up cycles and stuff like that. And so that's how the book ultimately happened. So since we're kind of short on time let's just go ahead and, and and jump right in so brad why don't you talk a little bit about the basis for chapter one and kind of kind of setting up why people exercise yeah so i wanted to chapter one was kind of to just set the stage um and, and explain some really core principles and one of the things that i think goes um unknown or underappreciated is that you know, so many people view exercise as the the key to weight loss um, and that it's kind of the, the one missing piece of everything. And, you know, when we really look at the research is the exercise piece is not really the most crucial piece to the weight loss, right? I mean, when you look at all of the data um, and, and you really look in the research is in the, the title of the chapter is, you know, you don't exercise for weight loss, you exercise to become a better athlete. Um, and what we focused on in that chapter was highlighting that piece, but then showing you that, you know, while the exercise doesn't really change the number on the scale as much as some of the other pieces, is it is what drives all of the beneficial adaptations, right? It changes the way your body uses food. It changes the way um, your body builds or holds on to muscle mass. It changes the way your heart functions. Um, and it, all of those beneficial adaptations um, are what we should really kind of key in on when we talk about, you know, exercise for fat loss, because it's those adaptations that are what's beneficial and eventually drives the success and in, in, in the, the fat loss eventually. So when you talk about adaptations, one of the biggest adaptations, obviously, that we're looking to do is either one, keep lean tissue or two, potentially gainly tissue. And I thought one of the interesting things that I'd ever heard was was from Alex Vieta, and it really kind of like hammered home things for me that you, you're really not just asking your body to create lean tissue. You're really asking your body to create a whole other system, you know, amongst the system that you have of blood vessels and capillaries and all this other type of stuff, right? And so... You know, talk a little bit about um, kind of how we think of that adaptation and, and what is kind of involved in that process. Yeah, so, you know, most of us think 
putting on muscle tissue just involves moving some weight around, activating some muscles, and your muscle is just going to grow. Um, but it's actually a lot more involved than that. And what it takes is it takes a specific type of signal, so obviously resistance training, but it also takes an accumulation of that signal, right? It, it's something that the adaptation takes some time, and it's something you have to continue to build on over and over and over again. Um, and one of the things we talk about in Chapter 2, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but it's really the volume that drives the adaptation. Um, so, you know, if you're going into the gym and you hit three sets of 10 um, twice a week, that's just not enough stimulation to advance change, right? And, and one of the things I like to kind of tell people is, you know, think about your hands, right? When, when you're weightlifting and, and you've got, and you can see I have giant calluses on my hands is, you know, if you pick up a weight once or twice with a barbell, you're not going to get calluses on your hands because you're not having enough stimulus to have this adaptation. And so this, this adaptation takes time to develop, and it's something you have to how to focus on. So the other thing that I think is sort of interesting as we talk about this, um, you know, adaptation overall is a lot of people are going to focus on the resistance training side of things. And, you know, with either form, really not saying, because this is one thing that we see a lot in group coaching, right? You know, we'll say to someone, hey, you should incorporate a little bit more resistance training. And then all of a sudden, 30 days later, they're like, I did the weightlifting thing. I'm like, awesome. How's, how's the running going? Oh, I quit running. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, well, I really wasn't saying that, you know, um, but, you know, talk a little bit about, cause, cause, you know, I think what you're really kind of hammering home with resistance training is that the, the, the stimulus as it relates to volume, you know, like one of the things that Mike always says is that you can out eat your metabolism over time. So the idea isn't to just go from like 85 pounds to infinite to 85 pounds, right? There's always going to be kind of these um, refractory periods where you're going to pull back a little bit and then, you know, maybe you'll advance a little bit more or you'll sort of change the way that you do things as you, as you start to get stronger and stronger and stronger all of the, the, the low-hanging fruit kind of goes away. And ultimately what you find is, you know, for your deadlift to get better, you have to add in heavy rows or you have to add in, you know, Romanian, uh, you know, stiff-legged deadlifts or, or some type of quad work or wherever your weaknesses are, right? So I think most people aren't really in that situation. The good majority of folks you know, are going to ultimately make a compromise as it relates to their programming. So I think it's real easy to listen to what Brad and I are talking about and going, oh my God, this sounds like, you know, it's never going to happen for me. Actually, people make gigantic jumps when they first start doing anything, you know. So if you've not done any weightlifting at all, you know, you can expect to make amazing jumps really quickly as long as you're sort of pushing yourself. What Brad is talking about, though, it sounds really complicated. So give me 17 exercises and, and let me do them 17 different ways. Honestly, a lot of the times I go to the gym, 
I'll work up to heavy singles, heavy-ish singles. You know, so maybe I go up to 225, sit at there, do five times five, and then I'll come down and then down set, then drop set for you know bigger volume pieces at that point. So maybe I come down, you know, to give a, as an example on a percentage to a number like um, you know 155, and then do five sets of ten, right? And then maybe I'll do some lunges or something like that. That is really more of kind of a, um, I always get down set and drop set confused. Which one is the, which one would be the lunges there? Uh, I don't even know. You know, uh, all that terminology gets, I think it's just uh, fancy words that people like to use and yeah, kind but of, it, kind of, it kind of masks what's important and the work is the important piece. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, one of the things that we talk a, a lot about, you know, that comes up with Olympic lifting is, you know, for you to get a, a, a heavy clean and jerk, right? There is a certain amount of skill work that's involved, but, you know, for a, a heavy snatch and for a heavy clean and jerk, you kind of have to lift those at a pretty high percentage. Now, deadlift and squat don't equate like that. So if you're doing that and you're doing that work, that's awesome, but really for a lot of folks that are just looking a good looking, going to try to look good naked, you really, the, the accessory work is going to be where they're going to see the biggest benefit because it's yeah. those lunges, it's the, you know, um, you know, the squats and things of that nature that will give, I'd say in things of that, that nature a lot, but it will give, you know, kind of that, that signal to your system, whether it be your central nervous system, your your muscle fibers, you know, to kind of reproduce on itself. So kind of keep that in mind as we talk about the resistance training piece where, you know, it's very interesting for all of us to go to the gym and lift as much as possible. The only problem is, is that if you lift too heavy, too often, Basically, you're just sending a signal to your central nervous system that's going to wear you out, you know, and so you're not going to be able to get enough volume in to really see kind of those muscle changes. So you're always playing this this game of trying to do enough heavy work, but also enough volume work. And so that's where a good book on programming is helpful. Um, exactly. So talk to me a little bit about the benefits of cardiovascular training because I, I think that if I, if I was a runner I, I'd feel picked on you know it seems I yeah. mean it sure seems like every well and I am a runner so I do I I it's kind of interesting because you know I I haven't been running lately I've been doing more um more rucks but because it's just better for my feet and it just feels right for me you know and I think that a lot of people could listen to their body a little bit more and sort of try to figure out what works for them. But, you know, it wasn't like I took out my running and then did not have a cardio piece involved. And, and that might be rowing, that could mean biking for other people. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, the advantages of cardio for people that weight train, because this is something that I don't think the good majority of folks think about. And, you know, I think it's an interesting piece. Yeah, so to, to tie that in is, you know, your cardiovascular system is 
really what allows you to recover, right? And that is intra-workout recovery and post-workout recovery. And essentially, the better cardiovascular system you have, the better you're able to recover between sets. So if I were to go in and I had horrible aerobic base, no capacity, and I were to hammer out a pretty, pretty rough set of 10 on the squats, and two minutes later, I were to try to do the same set, my recovery would be almost nil, right? I might be able to squeak out three or four reps. Um, but if I have a really good aerobic base to draw from, my recovery capacity in that two-minute window is going to be a lot higher. So having a better aerobic base and, and having more cardiovascular components to your training improves your intra-workout recovery. Um, it's also really key for your recovery between days. So, you know, rebuilding a lot of those, those systems um, requires a really big aerobic base. And so that's why you'll, you'll see really elite level lifters and stuff like that are doing, you know, some substantial cardio work. You know, guys like uh, Jim Wendler um, and, and even Louis Sims and, and some of the really big powerlifting people that, you know, they could, I mean, to see those guys run a marathon would be hilarious. But, you know, they program in things like prowler pushing days and, and tire flipping days and cardiovascular system based training days because they understand how much of a piece that takes for the recovery. So, you know, building in cardiovascular style training into even somebody who's a weightlifter or a powerlifter is incredibly important for performance aspect. So, you know, kind of a, a branch of that is similar to, to CrossFit, right? Where strength endurance is obviously the big thing there. And we're talking, yeah, it's kind of interesting when we talk about CrossFit because, you know, I would not consider CrossFit necessarily HIT training. Most people think of CrossFit as as HIT training. I, I'm, I'm not sure that CrossFit thinks of themselves that way, and I wouldn't think that um, any good CrossFit training program would think of itself that way. So what you said, what I thought was interesting, and, and I wanted to reiterate a little bit, is that if your cardio base is there, you're able to recover more. So the way that you would see this in the gym is the best athletes in your gym typically can work a lot closer to their one rep max than you know someone like myself, who's probably not as good um, of an athlete. And so, you know, they can, you know, whip out a lot more reps just because of that recovery ability. And then when we talk about, you know, the adaptation to the response, you know, it might take two days for someone with a bad cardio base. You know, when you, what I mean, when we talk about, you know, having a good cardio base, what are we talking about? We're talking about resting heart rate. We're talking about ability to sleep. Like all these things are, are, are favorable. And so those things are obviously going to help as it relates to recovery. But I think that, you know, talk to me a little bit about HIT though, because, you know, where does HIT come in? Because, you know, it's considered to be anabolic, right? Um, but it also has some, some um, cardio benefits as well, obviously. Yeah, so you know, hit is one of those things that I, I I had a colleague in graduate school doing her dissertation on hit, and we got in a, several heated debates about it. So it kind of brings back funny memories. But uh, it's you know, it's one of those things where it's just it's another training modality to try to shrink 
the amount of work into a shorter amount of time. Um, and, and really it's like, it's trying to fit long endurance cardio into a short window by kind of doing, doing intervals of hard work, recovery, hard work, recovery, hard work, recovery. Um, and some of the benefits of hit is that, you know, crunches the time down. Um, you get some of the, the glycolytic work. So you work some of that capacity, you get some recovery and, and aerobic base in, um, because you know, why you don't think you're doing work during those recovery periods, you're still doing some work. Um, so you're kind of working on some of the cardiovascular pieces too. Um, and, and it helps with a lot of those things. I think the, um, the thing that occurs to me the most though, is, is one, when I ask people what they do for resistance training, they'll often say CrossFit and, you know, then there, there's some people that are, are doing resistance training that I ask them what they do for cardio and, and they'll say hit. So give me an example. Here's how I think of it. And, and, and then you can give me your opinion. Okay. For one, if we're talking about a wad, it's really an accumulation of skills, right? So if, if you want to be good at double unders, you probably don't want to try that in a wad. You want to accumulate that skill outside of a wad and then try it in a wad as a test, right? So resistance training, you really want to be doing that kind of slow with rest so you can really focus on doing it in the correct manner. Then you know, if you want to test it, because, you know, this was always the argument that, that I would make when people would be critical of CrossFit, I would say, look, CrossFit is essentially, or it, it, it should essentially be warm-up weight for most people, right? So it's not going to be like these extreme numbers. Now, of course, you know, <laughs> as the sport has progressed, it's sort of gotten obscene, but, you know, when you look at the gyms that most of us go to, you know, we're still working with 85 pound snatches and a wad and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a warm up weight. If I were to snatch, you know, 155, you know, and then there was 85 and a wad, it would be no problem. And then, you know, the, the practice that I did would translate to better form. Um, but what I think with the hit portion of things, People will often focus on that because it wears you out, you know, and when I talk about hit, I think of something like Tabatas where you're really supposed to be at 100%, you know, and then after that four minute period or whatever it is that, that you're choosing, like you're wiped out, you know, while like you see a four minute workout, it should scare the hell out of you, you know, um, but when you look at a lot of, you know, circuit training, something like that. We're really looking at 15 to 20 minutes. You really can't burn that many calories in that scenario. And actually, you know, we're not really going to be talking about a lot of questions, right? But Kathleen's asking a question, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about here. She's saying, what is the best cardio workout to do when you're limited due to surgery recovery? I have six more weeks of either treadmill, elliptical, stationary bike, water, aerobics. Thanks. Well... All of those things, right? You know, people undervalue walking and hiking more than anything. When you look at a CrossFit workout, I mean, I get it. 
you know, or and I keep saying CrossFit, but really it's not just CrossFit because most trainers are, you know, um, recommending some level of circuits. You know, Orange Theory, as an example, is in, you know, longer, kind of slower circuits. Um, and so when you can get more volume piece in, like a hike for an hour and a half, you're typically going to burn a lot of calories, but you're not necessarily going to kill yourself, right? So then when you go to your resistance training the very next day, you're at 100%. And the problem is, is that, you know, a lot of this, you know, concise workouts really kind of wears you out too quickly. Any thoughts on that? No, I think that's perfect. And I'm going to kind of draw a figure that I think might kind of help people. So we have a... Uh, Which will work great for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's basically just like if you were to take a graph, you know, and you put it time on the bottom and work on the top, you know, the volume of your work is really in a... It's how much time over how much work. So if I have, you know, something that's like that four minutes of bottom Paul's talking about, right? This area right here is is the amount of work you do. But if you do something, you know, more like a hike and it's a long time and your intensity is really not quite as high, you're going to get a lot more work in. And I think so many people focus on the, uh, the level of intensity being what's going to drive and be the best. Um, and they don't think about the amount of work you can accumulate. So I think, you know, that's an important piece when you when you weigh the pros and the cons of kind of traditional cardio um, versus hit is you've got to really kind of play the balance of both of those things. Yeah, and so so I think that that's you know a good um, a good transition to really talking about the the fat loss component and thinking of how you would design things because what Brad and I what we're not saying is that there's no room for hit or there's no room for circuits or there's no room for heavy lifting but you want to really think about how that fits your goals right and so if your goals are fat loss over time and you're showing up and six days a week you're doing 20 minute you know kind of semi hit sessions i would argue that your body's going to figure that out very quickly and that you'd be much better off you know kind of piecing together the overall volume right where you have some level where you're you're building tissue through some level of resistance training um some level of of high intensity work and then some level of long work and then you know it just sort of depends on what your goals are you know if your goals are to acutely build more muscle which, oh, by the way, is not fat, you know, there's a lot of pieces to that. Brad, have been Brad and I have been talking about that all day long, right? So if you want to add lean tissue gradually, you know, you can really kind of move to more of a recomp. And I would say that for, you know, a lot of our audience, which is probably mostly 35 to 55, you know, that fits for most of us. You know, where we're not trying to kill ourselves, but, you know, we don't want to necessarily be embarrassed when we take off our shirt at the beach, right? And so for that individual, you're, you're mostly going to want to see improvement 
not starve yourself constantly, and then enjoy what you're doing, you know, most of the time, right? And so, you know, having some level of, of balance there. But talk to me a little bit about the types of fuels that you burn with different types of exercise and how you can structure your programming to kind of, you know, use them differently. Yeah, so, um, you know, our, our resident metabolic um, metabolic flexibility specialist, Dr. Mike T. Nelson and I, we talk about this quite a bit. And, you know, your body is uh, a very interesting machine and it will, it's kind of dictated really by the laws of physics. And, and the cool part is when your body is working in like the really high intensity, short duration pieces, is it uses primarily carbohydrates um, just because of the way that your body can produce energy in, in the same rate as it's using more carbohydrates. And when you're kind of working in the longer, slower duration pieces, your body's going to be using more dietary fat and more fats that are kind of built in your muscles or stored in your muscles um, for energy. And so really what happens is, is when you're kind of engaging in these, you know, if you were to do a, a set of 10 for your squatting, you're going to be using more carbohydrates to fuel that. Um, but then when your body's recovering from that set, you're going to be using more fat. Um, when you're doing more kind of long cardio stuff, your body's actually going to be using a fair mix of both. Uh, most people think, you know, long endurance training is going to be a, a almost all fat. Uh, but unless you're just kind of, you know, walking real, real slow, your body's going to be using a lot more carbohydrates than you think. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where your body's going to be using the whole spectrum, but the more you're on the higher intensity side, the more carbohydrate piece you're using. So I wanted to kind of kind of pause there for a second because I think it, it's sort of interesting and this is actually a discussion that we had in the certification today because somebody was talking about long running. So when Brad is talking about long endurance, okay, I think we have to sort of define that a little bit because is long endurance a 5K? Is long endurance a 10K? Or is long endurance 15 miles or more, right? And... I would say that from my personal experience, you could probably get away with five, well, certainly you would not need gel packs for a 5K, right? You should be able to, to, to survive a 5K without gel packs. And I would say that that's also true for a 10K. Now, where what was a little bit of the discussion that we were having earlier is as my training started going into like the 15 and 20 mile range, not only did I crave carbohydrates, you know, which is one of, you know, a lot of people are kind of, you know, nailing these gel packs nonstop. Um, but I was also cra craving things like potato chips and, and salted almonds. And so fats certainly were part of the game. What I think is 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 an interesting part of that discussion is that it's not just so much the the carbohydrates or fats. We're really talking about calories, you know. And so when you start talking about draining your system and using an amount of of energy, your body is going to acutely want to replace that energy 
after a certain while. And I would hit probably around that, you know, and, and everybody's different. But for me, you know, I would hit probably 10 to 11 and I had to be pretty serious about it. And I sort of found that if I started around six miles, um, and started being serious about my carbs and then having some salted almonds and stuff like that, then I could get to 18 a lot easier and without, without problems. If I didn't do it, basically I'd hit like 11, 12 miles and it was like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. You know? Um, and then all of a sudden I add the food and boom, I'm good. Right. So I think, you know, when you're listening to this, when Brad is talking about the glycolytic demand of long endurance running, roughly on percentage, and I could be off here, so correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I believe it's only like 15 to 20% is used from a, a glucose standpoint on long endurance, right? Kind of as an average. But when we talk about 15 to 20% and you're on the road for three hours, now we're starting to talk about a lot, you know? So let's say that if, if you're burning, you know, 700 calories and, you know, of that 700 calories, 140 of it is carbohydrates. And then you're on the road for, for three hours, you know, now we're talking about 420 calories from carbs alone. And and the overall calorie intake. I mean, you don't necessarily need to replace 100%. Your body, your body is fine. You can sort of figure it out. But, but in general, do you have any any thoughts on kind of specific ranges that some of the long endurance people and, and how they might think about it? Um, you know, it's one of those things where the uh, the endurance community has has really kind of figured a lot of this stuff out. You know. Yeah. Ironman athletes and marathon runners is there's a lot of really good resources out there that have like formulas for, you know, how long you're out there, what your calorie burn is. And, and that's an area that um, I've dabbled in, but I don't really know enough to give, you know, kind of really good concrete okay. um, answers to people. So um, we can get those resources, but it's that area of research has been really, really borne out. And we really know a lot about it. I mean, not, not me personally, but the research is pretty clear. Um, and there's some really good resources, but you know, it's one of those things where once, you know, once you start to get into those two plus three, four, five hour events, um, that's when you're really going to need some exogenous food. But for most people going an hour or two, you don't really need anything to, to get you through it really. Well, and also you don't need like a triple pancake breakfast breakfast after a 5k you know and if you if you if you want to celebrate with your family you hadn't run a 5k and there probably is an argument especially if if you you know are a deconditioned athlete you know one of the the interesting things that i kind of bring up a lot was when i first started um at the crossfit gym that i still work out at so at that point, I was already doing like eat perform type stuff, right? So I was eating 3,000 calories a day. And when I moved to CrossFit, I had to move up to 4,000 calories a day. And that adjustment, basically, I put on like 10 pounds of muscle like quickly, right? And within, I'd say, three to four months, I had to move back to 3,000 calories. Why was that? Well, my body had adapted. And so um, when you're new to training 
and you run a three a 5K for the first time, yeah, it probably does feel like you need pancakes and you might need pancakes to sort of adapt to the stimulus. But just remember that it's not, you know, your, your body will create the tissue, it will adjust to, to the stimulus, and you might not need as much energy over time, right? Uh -huh. um, any thoughts as it relates to kind of the central nervous system piece? Because I think that's, that's always an interesting topic as it relates to just, you know, the overall adaptation. You know, I, I don't think most people realize, you know, whether it be overtraining, whether it be, you know, um, just not allowing for enough recovery. Talk a little bit about the central nervous system and the role it plays for improving in exercise. Yeah, so, you know, the central nervous system is kind of, uh, if we want to make it as simple as possible, is it kind <laughs> of what allows you to do the high performance work? Um, and kind of the higher end strength stuff and power stuff. Um, and, and also kind of at the very end ranges of the long endurance where you kind of really get out there. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff kind of put out in the blogosphere and all these things about, you know, you're frying your CNS and, and, and a lot of things like that by training heavy. Um, but what we really see is, you know, people who have recovery issues and, and, and have, CNS burnout is it's not from the training um, it's from the recovery that they're not doing they're not eating enough they're not sleeping enough um, they're living like I like to say it, living like jerks right they're they're not eating right they're not sleeping right they're drinking too much they're not taking the proper recovery days um, and that's really when the CNS problems come in right I mean, if you're somebody who's going in and squatting heavy twice a week and deadlifting heavy once a week, that's not going to be enough to, to fry your nervous system unless you're doing everything else like you should be, which, you know, most of us, I've been there, you know, I've done the, I've lived like a jerk for a long time and, and have had some, some problems with recovery, but it's, it wasn't from the training. I can tell you that. Living la vida loca. So, um, that's what I was thinking <laughs> the whole time you were saying this. Um, I had to get that out. Um, <laughs> I think the other the thing that's interesting about what you're saying there is a lot of the group coaching people have HRVs and heart rate variability basically um, you know will define your amount of recovery and when you look at the two things that stress your system the most it's almost never exercise right? It's sleep and sickness, right? If you're, if you don't sleep enough, um, so someone, you know, made a statement that I used the word underslept too much. Um, if that is even a <laughs> word. Um, so I've tried not to use underslept, but underslept, underslept, you know, cause it's apparently bothering someone big time. Um, but, but if you're not getting enough sleep, or if you're sick, that will affect your recovery more than anything. So, you know, there's a lot of people that, that talk about overtraining. And I would argue that, you know, their issue might not be overtraining. It might be, you know, not making sleep a priority, you know, or might be, you know. One of the things that we talk to people a lot is... I'm doing two a days. 
and then uh, you know I'll say why, <laughs> you know, and if you don't want to have a good answer for why, you probably need to stop doing two a days, you know, because what I think ultimately is happening, you're probably not frying your central nervous system if you're getting enough sleep and you're eating an adequate amount of food, but you're also not getting better at exercise in a lot of cases. I mean, if you're a 24 year old person, you know, sure, you probably are, you know, but for the, you know, if you, if you don't have a good designed system or a program, you're probably leaving a lot of gains on the table by just, you know, working out too much. Now we're big fans of working out and, I think what I'm ultimately trying to say to you guys is that, you know, the conditions around how you work out. One of the things that was kind of interesting, Mike and I, we did a live seminar with a bunch of high-level athletes. And um, one of the guys, I actually talked about this in the certification today, um, when he was in the North Central region and... Uh, I saw him afterwards, he made the CrossFit games and he pulled me off to the side and he said, hey, you know, in that seminar, you talked to me about, you know, because he would say to me, he said, I don't feel hungry a lot. And then just one day I'm ravenous and I eat all the food. And I said, well, that's a lack of preparation. I said, if you get more consistent about your preparation, your workout volume will go crazy and and you won't have kind of those deficiencies. And he came up to me and he said, he's like, that advice made a big difference for me and probably was the thing that got me to where I am now. You know, and I think the, the good majority of people are there, right? If If you were eating, you know, and you had some understanding of how much you need to be eating on a daily basis, had some understanding of, you know, the thing that I always say is that John Stewart, you know, it's not John Stewart anymore, but um, um, Jimmy Kimmel, you know, is is Jimmy Kimmel destroying your gains, right? Because, you know, you, you come home, you know, you get the kids to bed, and you just want to relax. Well, a lot of times, if you were to prioritize sleep, over watching like late night programming, you'd be better off, you know? And then, you know, if you could just like change the day around and schedule some of that relaxation stuff, maybe in the morning, you know, when you wake up, that might be better, you know, try to find other pieces. But I think that, you know, when we talk about, you know, keeping your immune system functioning well um, and recovery, that that's the big piece there. Um. So we did have one other question that was kind of interesting, and I, I, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it because it's something that, that um, I think comes up a lot. You know, it's sort of the basis of something like Orange Theory. I don't, do they have Orange Theories where you are? So Orange Theory, yeah. Orange Theory is basically like circuit training, but it's mostly cardio, um, not super heavy, a lot of treadmills, a lot of rowing, stuff like that, kind of lower weights. I think it's actually kind of interesting um peace but you know once again you know people are doing it you know five times six times a week and it's like you're kind of doing the same thing over and over again and i think it's actually a great piece if you have resistance training and then maybe some kind of longer endurance as well um or or some kind of hit work 
But so Sherry was asking that since she's gotten her Fitbit, she's amazed at how many calories she burns, but how little she is in the fat burning zone. And so what my belief is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the fat burning zone is sort of overrated. You know, um, it's really, um, it's not that it doesn't exist, and it's certainly true, but it's taken a little bit out of context because it's not what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. Yeah, that's the that's the best way to say it. So why don't you why don't you describe what it is? So it's basically, you know, like we talked about earlier, when you're training, your body kind of burns on a spectrum of more carbohydrates or more fat. And, and the fat burning zone is the zone in which your body is burning a substantial amount of calories from exercise, but it's using mostly fat for fuel. Um, and that is entirely true, right? There's periods where your body is going to be using more fatty acids to provide ATP or energy. But the problem is, is people make the assumption that because my body is using more fat to create energy, it's burning more fat off my body. Um, and that's not true. So what your body uses for fuel to produce energy does not necessarily mean that's the type of weight you're going to be losing, right? So, I mean, it, it just, it doesn't equate, you know, and that's a, that's a lot of the problems where you see uh, it comes in up in, you know, like supplements and stuff like that, where it increased fat oxidation. Okay. Well, your cells are using fat, but that doesn't mean it's using your stored body fat. It just means it's using the fat that's in your muscle cells and your muscle cells can create fat from a whole lot of different stuff. It doesn't have to come from your body fat. So the fat burning zone is true in that there's a piece, your muscles are using some fat for energy, but that doesn't mean it's using your body fat specifically for energy. So when we talk about using stored bodily fat, it's kind of interesting because right now, you know, with eat perform, you know, our deficits are called performance-focused fat loss cycles, right? So essentially, it's kind of a different take on a deficit or dieting. If you know, I, I hate using the 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 four-letter word. The D word. Yeah, the <laughs> D word. Um, but uh, but what's interesting, I think is a lot of people want to look at the numbers and they want to think of their numbers getting lower. And so for myself, as an example, um, my numbers were, were right around 2,700. For a long time, I was trying to stay over 3,000. And then, you know, we're all sort of in this compromise of, you know, the amount of calories that, the amount of work that we want to put in compared to the amount of energy that we can eat, right? So in a deficit cycle, you know, I'm setting up my deficit kind of similar to the way that most would, you know, where you're basically 500 calories, you, you, you want to have like a 500 calorie average. And, you know, that, that is sort of a moving target. And so that gets to be a little tricky at times. So one of the things I do to adjust to that, and I think it's kind of addresses Sherry's real question, is if I normally eat 2,700, okay, and I have my deficit set at 2,200, 2,000, 1,800, right, where, where I'm kind of um, down-regulating, 
and I'm trying to get the most effect with the least amount of interference, I'm going to get the most effect from being more active throughout the day, not exercising necessarily, right? Walking around the neighborhood, you know, like longer, you know, walking my dog longer, right? These are just little tricks that I'm able to do. So, so whereas before performance focused fat loss, okay, where I'm normally, you know, eating at 2,700 to 3,000, but let's just say 2,700 just for math. Now, all of a sudden I'm in a deficit, but I'm making sure that my burn is more than 3,000 on a daily basis, right? I've upped my low intensity work. What that does is if you look at exercise and, and, and people will often say that exercise makes you hungry, you know, it depends, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, 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 it's one of those things that you feel stress of, you know, exercise and dieting is stress, right? And so essentially more acute stress, you might go to, you know, you might go to a teddy bear, right? Or you might go to a Snickers bar. Um, and so, so when you think that exercise makes you hungry, think of that, right? That, you know, it might just be a stress response from you. But when we talk about, you know, adding that little amount of work, right? So when you talk about 300 more calories, and then you're already in a bit of a deficit. And, and the, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the way that most people think of it is, is I need to reduce my calories. It's like, okay, that's fine. Reduce your calories. But can we get a little bit more work in that doesn't crush you and doesn't stress you out? You know, when I'm not doing resistance training or I'm not doing like hard work, like high intensity work, there's a lot of bang from your buck just walking your dog longer and just, you know, walking around the neighborhood and making that a priority on a daily basis. You, you know, you're, you don't want to be in dieting cycles for long periods of time. And so if you can, you know, have them in these concise eight to 10 week periods, I think it helps adherence, and especially helps adherence when, you know, it's not that hard. Right. And, you know, I guess we're sort of coming to the end. Why don't you give me your thoughts on what I just said, but also give me your thoughts on. Um, well, let's just stop there. Let's let, give me your thoughts on that and then we'll come back to the next piece. No, yeah, I think that's a, a perfect way to put it. And you know, I know you and I were chatting about this the other day, too, is. When we talk about creating that deficit, you know, the less model of just restricting calories only gives you one piece and that's less calories. The adding an extra training gives you the beneficial adaptations that happen from training. I just need to stop you for just a second because what it doesn't just reduce your calories, it increases your stress. Okay. Mm -hmm. Part of that stress in theory is to um, use stored bodily fat, but if you go too far, you'll be fatigued throughout the day and things of that nature. So I wanted to just kind of get that out. No, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, good point.
So yeah, just the additional work also brings beneficial adaptations, not just the negative things that come with less food. Yeah, and I think that um, when we talk about fat loss and exercise, I think that, you know, it, it always kind of interests interests me because gyms do a lot of challenges and and often the challenges tend to be too extreme and they'll often say well your workouts your workouts for the first two to three weeks are going to be horrible eat the form kind of doesn't work like that um now that doesn't mean that if you're in a deficit you won't experience discomfort right but Really what Eat to Perform is, is about managing that discomfort while seeing a result. So if you look at, you know, the way that most people do it, you know, because Sherry, Sherry's actually responding saying that the way that you described it, you know, she never really thought of it like that. And I think the way that a lot of people think of, and, and someone is raising their hand um, in the webinar, uh, feel free to use chat for the question. I don't know if they've had their hand raised for a long time or what, but, um, but when we talk about managing discomfort, we're talking about managing stress. And if you're dieting too extremely while trying to increase your activity level, you're going to want to do that with the least amount of, you know, pain or stress, right? The more stress you put onto the system, the more you're going to affect your sleep, the more you're going to affect muscle, you know, atrophy, all these different types of things. Everyone talks about cortisol, right? And 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 cortisol being, you know, kind of the fight fight or flight hormone. But what they don't really talk about is how cortisol functions well. Typically, you know, one of the things that happened to me recently was my wife made a dish. And I didn't realize kind of how little carbs it had in it. And I mean, literally three hours later, I was starving, wanted to eat everything in the house. You know, and if I had just had that with a little bit of rice, you know, it, it would have been so much better as it related to my hunger signaling, right? And it would have provided me some level of satiety that the meal did not do on itself. And so when we talk about, you know, sort of managing what we're eating and managing the amount of stress, you know, really want to find a consistent groove that doesn't cause a great deal of comfort that you can kind of go to. And I think the other thing too, that, that, you know, when we talk about exercise and stress is people want too much too fast and that really hurts them and ultimately causes them to have perceived failure. You know, one of the interesting things, conversations that I had was with Dr. Tracy Mann from the University of Minnesota and she talked about how studies show that dieters have the best willpower of virtually anybody on the planet. But if you talk to any dieter, 
You know, they will say to you, I have horrible willpower and that's why I can't succeed. I would argue that eventually your willpower is going to give in to, you know, it's not just diet and exercise that's stress. I mean, we have stress throughout our day. And so, you know, if, you know, there's a, a death in the family as an example, you know, and, and your focus is, is over here, it's rightly so that you're going to now focus on the death in the family, right? Is that willpower? Or did you use your will for something more important? And I think, you know, when we're talking about kind of setting up these, these structures, I think people tend to be a little bit more rigid than they need to be. What are your thoughts on that, Brad? No, I totally agree. You know, from the, the willpower pieces, we only have, you know, a finite amount of resources and, and every day, you know, all the, all the other things that add up, control your ability to make those decisions. Um, and, and so managing the stress and how stressful your diet is that you perceive it to be is, is a really big piece of the success piece. Um, and, you know, Mike, last time all three of us were on made, you know, probably one of the most salient points I've heard in a long time is, you know, the people who are successful um, feel like they have more control over what they're doing and, but they don't stress out about it. Right. They, they're like, okay, I can make these decisions and I will. Um, people who are less successful feel like everything is out of their control and they, they just can't make these things and everything's super stressful and it's just out of their control. And so that's one of those things where, you know, breathe, breathing in some level of control and, and not letting the stress accumulate and get to you is a really big piece of the success. Another way to say that is that you control the switch. I think that, that a lot of people feel like, I don't understand why I can't lose fat. Well, I do, you know, because all you're focused on is down and all you're focusing on is extreme stress and extreme restriction. And if you periodically, you know, went the other way and actually had that as the majority of your life and only occasionally did the other, right? That's why we say, you know, when you're exercising, don't exercise for fat loss, exercise to get better at exercise because it's that adaptation that's going to be favorable for thyroid, it's going to be favorable for lean mass, it's going to be favorable for metabolic rate, you know, all these different things. But if you're only focused on, and it's okay for fat loss to be on the list, but if it's first on the list, then we have a problem because then you won't feel like you control the switch. But if you control those other things and you can file them away, okay, now I have some lean mass, I can pull that down, maybe go into a deficit period and use my better metabolic rate. Or, you know, you have a you have a good functioning thyroid because you know your 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 um you all your bodily processes have been upregulated because you're eating normal. Now all of a sudden that's a little thing that you filed away, and that is good. So, you know. What Brad is sort of referring to is trying to get more control over your situation and, and, and kind of a favorite book of both Brad and I is, um, oh shoot, what am I, what am I missing? Um, extreme ownership. Yeah, yeah. 
So in, in Extreme Ownership, which is a great book, I would recommend it to all of you guys. But the author says something that I think everyone needs to hear, and it was certainly something that, that means a lot to me, is discipline is freedom. And what he was referring to is that when you're at war, there is chaos all around you all the time. And dealing with that chaos, you know, where you're attacking the things that have the biggest priorities, you know, first, you know, if you're if you have a death in the family, you shouldn't feel bad about the fact that you're eating like a normal human being on that day, right? Because you know, you have a bigger priority that needs to be taken care of there. You know, if um, you know, you're you're on a vacation, you know, hiking through, you know, mountains, you know, that's going to require food. So that would, you know, once again, put kind of that fat loss piece, you know, on the back burner until we can kind of make that, that a priority again. But, but the discipline is freedom, I think really applies for the people that are struggling with sleep, that are struggling with, with habits, you know, I mean, one of the habits that I always bring up in, in group coaching is my laundry, you know, is I, I often let my laundry go. I'm currently letting my laundry go. I'm actually got to have, I got to have my laundry ready though, because Sherry, who is, is talking on the, on the webinar, um, I'm actually going out to visit those guys in Colorado. And um, so I definitely have to get my laundry ready. But, you know, I think we can all relate to whether it's, laundry or an oil change or or all these little things that go on in life if you have those things taken care of sometimes the big things that come up unexpectedly you could deal with them easier but if you don't have the laundry done you don't have the oil change and you're consistently eating convenient food you're not getting to the gym and and all these different things right you know that's an undisciplined life and so you think of oh, discipline, wow, that sounds really rigid and, and uncontrolled. It's actually no, you know, when you have all of these things in place, in place, it allows you some level of flexibility that, you know, is, is really where kind of the sweet spot is, I think. Any thoughts on that before we shut it down, Brad? No, I think that's, you know, a good point to end on. And, you know, I can use myself as kind of a, an example that kind of fits in, you know, with the, the body recomposition piece. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where it kind of ties that into the control piece. And, you know, for the past probably two months, work has been really busy. I've had an injury. My training volume's gone down. I haven't made food as big of a priority as I normally do. And, the other day I woke up and I looked in the mirror and I was like, you know what? I've, I've seen some changes the wrong way. Um, I got on the scale and the, the muscle I spent a lot of time putting on had fallen off. Um, and so it's one of those things where, you know, you can, you can stop and you can kind of freak out and go, Oh my God, I need to go on, you know, a crash diet. I'm yeah. going to be eating chicken and kale today. I'm, I'm not eating any carbs. I'm going to go to the gym and get on the rower for two hours. Um, and you know that, I mean, even me, that was my immediate like brain response. I was like, Oh my God. And then you take a second and you're like, you know what? I have the skills I need to do what I need to do. I know I need to start doing better meal prep. I need to get a little bit more training in at the gym. I got to sleep better. I got to be more organized at work. So I have more time. And I was just like, okay, well, 
And then that day I came home from work, I, I prepped meals, I set my alarm to get up a little earlier to get 20 more minutes of work in, and I just started taking the steps. And you know, it's one of those things where knowing you're in control is a really big piece. It's so freeing, man. You know, the, um, you know, we do a lot of work on the weekends, so Fridays is actually my free day, and, and I've learned to just use that. You know, it, it's it. You know, you you're tempted to just go to the movies or whatever. But if you can take two or three of those things that are sort of weighing on the back of your brain and just get them out, man, it's so so refreshing. I think I think there was there was a couple thoughts that I had as you were talking about, you know, kind of feeling a little bit out of shape and and looking in the mirror. I, I was thinking that you were gonna say I looked in the mirror and I'm like I'm still hot. <laughs> Um, but, but, but you brought up something that I think everyone needs to hear is that we feel what you feel. We feel that daily, you know, and what I, what I think happens for people is they want to have a finite date and a finite weight and a finite mount they're going to lift or a finite, you know, distance they're going to run. And then after that, you know, unicorns and balloons and, and streamers will fly from the sky. And it's like, nope, you know, they won't. Six months from now, there'll still be a piece that you don't have completely figured out. And that's okay. Like, that is a little bit of, of you know, being roughly 10 years into my fitness life, it's the best part because there's not as much pressure. You know, I, I felt a, I felt a, you know, overwhelming. If I didn't work out six times a week, you know, I was going to get fat again, you know? And at year 10, I don't have those panics. And I realize that the secret is, more getting better exercise, whatever that means for you, you know, doing it in a gradual way without the timeline. It's really some of these timelines and stuff like that. Now, you know, once again, you know, I mean, we, we talk about deficit cycles over the course of eight weeks and stuff like that, but those things are more for adherence. And when you think of, you know, an eight week cycle where you're losing eight to 10 pounds, it's a lot easier than going, I need to lose 50 pounds. And you don't really have a good plan, so you end up just kind of starving yourself and constantly failing, and then you know you're you're you end up at the same spot or worse, right? And so what we're trying to walk you guys through is just like like Brad was saying, is that life attacks you at times, and the more you can realize it the better. And you know, it's kind of funny because as you're saying it, I, I'm thinking of my relationship. I'm thinking of my relationship with my wife. You know, one of the great things about my relationship with my wife is that when I feel disconnected from my wife, I feel it like in my bones, you know, and I do something to say, you know what? I appreciate you. That's how we need to do for ourselves. All of us need to look at our relationship with ourselves and go, you know what? When I don't do my laundry, it, you know, I'm taking a little piece out of my relationship with myself. You know, when I don't do my oil change, and I know it sounds crazy, but 
all those things allow you to go to the gym, you know, at 100%. They allow you to, to you know, have this freedom that allows you to progress and you don't have this overwhelming, oh my God, the whole world is against me and I don't control the switch. You do control the switch. And discipline is certainly going to be a big answer for that. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate everybody being here. I think this was kind of an awesome one. And uh, I appreciate Brad doing this. And we'll talk to you guys later. Do you want to say goodbye, Brad? Yeah, thanks, everybody, for jumping on. We'll uh, talk to you guys soon. All righty. Bye-bye.